I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Karen Doherty, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist and documentary filmmaker located in Toronto. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. One of the things that we talked, you asked me about was to think about um, my sort of path to psychoanalysis. And I, and I thought a lot about that kind of storytelling. You know, how do you tell the story of your path to psychoanalysis? And you kind of got to start with the Big Bang. You know, you kind of got to go back right to the beginning. You could, or you could start it, you know, sort of at so many points. Because for, I think for any analyst, you know, their path begins in childhood first. You know the family of origin and and so on. So I thought, where what's a good place to start the story? And I had so many um, so many ideas, but I suppose one would be just reading as a child, like having a kind of a lonely childhood and spending all my time with books and stories. And so that and, and then you know as a little child, sort of fairy tales and myths. But then somehow when I was a little kid um, in a little tiny town in Ontario here in Canada, there was a wonderful library in the school I went to. It was just, I don't know how it happened. It was very odd. Uh, it shouldn't have happened because there would have been a tiny little budget. This is in the 70s in, in on small town Ontario. And there was a, a, a whole collection of biographies of women. Now, back in the 70s, that was all, you know, sort of white women. It was um, uh, Amelia Earhart, Madame Curie, uh, Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan, Florence Nightingale. And I just ate these biographies up. I just, I absolutely loved them. And I think that was a kind of precursor to being interested in the narrative of a life, of narrativizing life. And so then I'll just skip to post uh, English uh, master's degree um, and starting uh, work. And I started working at a public uh, broadcasting um, organization here. We have in Ontario, we have something called TVO, which is our public educational broadcaster. And I started working there and working for the documentary unit there. And documentaries, of course, point of view documentaries was what we we commissioned there are all sort of biographies, like little mini biographies that are universal because they're particular. And there was a filmmaker I was introduced to who is our kind of greatest filmmaker here in Canada, I think, um, Alan King. He's since passed away, but he, he was the great cinema verite documentary filmmaker starting in the 50s, um, making point of view films that were, I didn't know at the time, about the unconscious. So I started kind of working um, with him on showing some of his films from the 60s and 70s and spending a lot of time with him uh, doing the publicity for these documentaries. And at one point he turned to me and he said, you know, and I was 26, 27 at the time. And he said, you should be a psychoanalyst. 
And I said, I don't know, like, what is that? I don't know what that is. Just tell me what that is. And he said, he gave me a card of a man. And he said, go, I want you to go talk to this man. Go talk to him. I think he should be a psychoanalyst. And so I phoned the guy and it turned out this was his analyst. This was his psychoanalyst who later became my analyst and who asked me a few questions in our initial meeting that I now know were very kind of Bionian. Very, they were very much about um, how Beyond thinks of the mind uh, perceiving or thinking and perceiving the unconscious. He wanted to know if I sort of intuitively understood what the unconscious was. And I guess I passed his test. And, uh, and he said, I think you should go into psychoanalysis. So it was very kind of, again, very Bionian, the whole, the whole process, a bit mystical. And that was, you know, kind of almost 25 years ago. And I started at that time down the path of studying psychoanalysis, going to conferences, going to seminars, eventually doing a master's at Sheffield in psychoanalytic studies, all while I was making documentary films. I, 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 I sort of left the educational broadcaster and started um, working as an independent researcher, a filmmaker, and did, have done that and continue to do that. You know, um, so it was sort of these twin paths, uh, one um, sort of making a film about a life and one thinking about what's it, you know, how to ease suffering in a life. And they, they just cross over in so many ways. Um, so I started my training in psychoanalysis about 10 years ago at the, um, the Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis here in Toronto. And I was there for three years and uh, decided to change institutes. We have two institutes here. Um, that was, uh, it was just a little too relational for me, which is not object relations, but a kind of American version of analysis, which comes out of psychology more than, than sort of um, British object relations, which was my training. So I switched institutes and uh, to the Toronto Institute and um, have finished all of the things, all everything I need for my training. And I'm just waiting for the IPA to give me my wings and fly me up and, uh, and uh, I'll be done. So I've been working um, for the last 10 years as a psychotherapist and I have a, a full-time uh, psychotherapy and psychoanalytic practice here in Toronto. And, um, and it's been a, a, just a remarkable sort of experience getting to, you know, from that moment of um, Alan King saying, go do this and me thinking, okay, let me find out what it is. <laughs> Here I am. Yeah. So that's, that's, I guess that's the, that's one way of telling the story. Yeah, that's great. I was going to ask you how you went from documentary film to psychoanalysis. So there you go. And you do both still. What kinds of films have you made? What kind of subjects? Well, the, the last film that I, that I fully made myself was called um, uh, uh, Dr. Beatrice Beebe, the, the, the world, I think, the world of Dr. Beatrice Beebe. So she does, Beatrice Beebe, if you know who she is, she is a, um, she does, she's a psychoanalyst in, at Columbia and a psychological researcher. And she does video microanalysis of mother-infant face-to-face interactions. Uh, she's been doing it for 40 years. She has longitudinal studies now, and she can tell at four months doing face-to-face um, -face video microanalysis, frame-by-frame -frame analysis, the attachment style of a baby from four months as an adult. So she, from four months, two and a half minutes of face-to-face -face interaction with the mother, she can tell your attachment style as an adult, as a young adult. So it's pretty amazing. Um, so I, I met her... Um, a few years ago when I was uh, uh, training at the TICP and she taught a class and I, I watched her video microanalysis and said at the end of the seminar, I said, you know, you should make a documentary. And she said, just give me a call. So very similar to Alan King, just, just call. So I called and we've made a few projects since then. So this was, that was financed by PepWeb, that, that half hour documentary. Uh, and it's, it lives on PepWeb. But she and I are also working right now on a series of um, web episodes. So six short films that are um, sort of deep dives into, into a mother-infant dyad to show something 
about face-to-face -face communication and showing that that face-to-face -face communication is a two-way street. It's mother and baby. It's not just mother to baby. Uh, and then we're also working on a film about how infant research can inform adult treatment, which is really interesting. It's all mostly nonverbal communication, but really kind of fascinating her um, research in that area. So that's, those are films that I've kind of made, produced, directed, et cetera, myself. But I also have a co, um, a collaborating partner, a very good friend of mine, Phyllis Ellis. She's my best friend here in, in Toronto. She's a wonderful director. And she and I have collaborated on a few films where I kind of do the research and the moral support and the story help. And um, uh, the last one we did was called Toxic Beauty. Toxic Beauty is a film about the ugly side of the cosmetics industry. And it's, uh, we did the Johnson & Johnson um, story about uh, the sort of um, cancer-causing agents in talc. And uh, so that's a kind of big social issue, Doc. We also did a film called Girls' Night Out about the binge drinking epidem epidemic among young women. So social issue films, psychoanalytic films, and, uh, and psychoanalysis, those are kind of the three main things that I do. That's great. I love hearing all the ways that everybody applies psychoanalysis and is using it and looking at things through a psychoanalytic lens. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I know, because you can use it in any way, really, right? Like, it's just a lens. Exactly, yeah. like merge it with your passion. And of mm -hmm. course, we met because you interviewed uh, Ben Ben Hessler, who was one of the people who did the Freud Netflix series. Can we talk about that? Sure. I know I, I did your interview. I didn't want to listen to your interview um, that you did with the uh, the consultant because I didn't want any spoilers. But I finished the series last week. Yeah. Um, when when I found out about the series, because I work for I'm on the IPA, the um, International Psychoanalytic Association Social Media Committee. And when I saw the Freud series coming down the pike, I thought, oh, this is this is great. This is people are going to have such a problem with this or people are going to love it. Like I knew that I just saw all of the everything that was going to happen. And um, and I hadn't seen it yet. Not one episode. I'd seen the trailer only. And so I reached out to Netflix and asked if I could interview one of the writers or the director. And they put me in touch with Benjamin Hessler. And we had just a wonderful conversation about, um, you know, his inspiration and the sort of background of it but I hadn't seen it when I interviewed him, which was really weird because when I used to do publicity for, for film, I would always watch the thing first and then have all my questions. So, um, but now that I've watched all eight episodes via Netflix party with some of the, um, with some psychoanalysts, we've been watching an episode a week. I'm, I'm just so thrilled. Like I just thought it was great. Not at first. At first, I was not. I thought, oh, no, what are they going to do? What are they doing to Freud? <laughs> this is terrible. He's cocaine-fueled. He's a charlatan. I thought, oh, no. But then by the end, I was just absolutely thrilled with this idea of how Freud, you know, sort of discovered so many things about um, that later be become psychoanalysis. So I, I thought it was really well done and spooky and fun and funny and, you know. Yeah, I like. I think the last episode, like the ending, really tied it all together. It was really sweet uh, yeah. how they like ended with him having his first patient. You know. Yes, and the, and Martha, of course, the whole series is so dark, and then you have lovely Martha, Martha, who is you know, just sweetness and light, and so cute and exactly right. I thought the casting. Was, I mean, I thought everything was pretty brilliant, but I thought the casting was exceptional. And the depiction of his relationships that we know uh, about, like with his mother or with his father or with Marta, I thought those were just perfect, like note perfect. So yes, they used Peter Gay's biography, right? And so, um, and there, there were other things they could have used that, that could have um, sent them down a terrible path. But instead, they, they, you know, they ended up kind of rescuing themselves. I, I know there were a lot of analysts who watched, you know, the first episode and then said, this is it. 
it's going to destroy psychoanalysis. <laughs> and, but um, for those of us who are, you know, love Freud, love psychoanalysis, but aren't, you know, adult like like aren't acolytes like aren't you know aren't aren't so worried. You can about have a little truth. fun with it. It's okay. Yeah. You don't have to be serious all the time. Yes, <laughs> I, like, I like fun with Freud. I think that's I, I think it's great. And and so, what did you have? Sort of a favorite character aside from, of course, Freud himself is very handsome. Oh yeah, definitely Freud. Robert Finster is very handsome. Um, yeah, he made a great dashing Freud. Um, I mean, of course. So Salome was great, right? But um, yeah, I mean, I think they were all really well done. The Hungarian couple, uh, they were pretty fabulous too. The costumes were really amazing. The sets were amazing. Um, yeah, I thought it was really fun. I was definitely ambivalent about it when I started watching it. And I was like, oh, can you just do whatever you want with Freud? You know, <laughs> but I think, I think the same thing, like, I don't think you can kill psychoanalysis. I think at this point, I think so many people are worried. And I've heard so many times people saying, oh, psychoanalysis is dying. It's a dead field. It's a dying profession, but it's still around. And I think it's getting stronger now, at least like in the like past 15 years that I've been like really studying and practicing, it, it's gotten stronger as, as far as I can tell. So I don't think I don't think you can destroy Freud or psychoanalysis. Like Freud is here to stay. So I, that's how I feel. And and I thought it was kind of a neat way to. And now it's hard for us because we know Freud to watch it and know how an audience who doesn't know about Freud would would um, would understand it. You know, knowing Freud and watching it. You know, there's all kinds of little inside jokes and it's quite thrilling. But, yeah, I like um, those. Yeah, no, and the couch and the, I mean, there's a few anachronisms like the couch and his, uh, you know, sort of little archaeological, like the artifacts and stuff. He doesn't, didn't have those yet, but, um, but for, for a lay audience, it's hard to know, you know, um, I think that you would come out of it kind of liking Freud and having maybe a, a new understanding of, of what the unconscious was, of what dreams were, you know, of, about what he contributed. And as Benjamin said, you know, it's, it's so impossible to depict life before Freud, it, before, before, because we're so inundated, we're so surrounded by, by his ideas. It is the way that we kind of look, especially with, um, you know, 120 years of movie making, you know, like the, so movies themselves are so kind of Freudian, essentially. And I think Benjamin mentioned that as well. So I don't know, I, I, I'd be interested to talk to someone who uh, doesn't know anything about Freud and who watched the series. You know, I haven't done that yet. Uh, have that's you? a good idea. No, I haven't. Um, and I, I didn't think of that before either, but that's a really good point that like film and film has not existed without Freud in the world. Like Freud and film happen at the same time. So like, mm -hmm. yeah, there is no like way to think about what film would be like without a psychoanalytic kind of lens because- psychoanalysis and film yeah are both about the same age yes and they're both and if you think about the screen yeah you know the screen and the unconscious and the dream screen and all of that you know all of that that sort of theory I mean it's really hard to to I mean we wouldn't have it without I think it would be very clunky very Lumiere brothers you know like there would be no fiction on film or something you know, yeah, it's amazing, and it is a it is an area that when psycho like when uh, like pharmaceuticals took over and psychoanalysis did kind of take a dip as far as like therapies go and treatment. You know, film classes, film theory, a lot of it is super psychoanalytic. They use Freud and Lacan and um, a lot of psychoanalytic thinkers in film, in film classes, in film theory, in the humanities. And that's where it really survived when it wasn't in the field of like mental health and psychology as strongly. So. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it died in, in like English departments for a while as well. You weren't allowed to use any kind of like psychoanalytic ideas really for a while, but now you can, you know, with Lacan and with, um, and Zizek of course, uh, has kind of rescued it for, for the world. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I think that, as you said, so many psychoanalysts, they come from like, for, for example, my class of um, 12, 13 people, uh, everybody's from a very different discipline. We have somebody who's a um, philosophy of law professor and a 
um, professor of theater and cultural studies and, you know, um, a documentary filmmaker, a couple of psychiatrists. Um, so, you know, very various disciplines coming together and informing psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis, you know, sort of being informed by all of these different disciplines. I think it's actually burgeoning again. I think it's, I think it's a huge renaissance for psychoanalysis. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that that exact point that the diversity of perspectives and fields that people come from, you know, it's been like that since the very beginning. And I think that's what really made it so rich in the beginning is what is making it so rich again now, you know. But what, what kind of theoretical orientation is uh, prominent in your institute now? Well, it, it was for many years because it was the first, you know, in the 50s, I believe, uh, um, sort of uh, very Freudian. Now it's multidiscipline. You know, it's sort of, um, uh, there are people who are self-psychologists. There are a lot of object relations folks. There are a bunch of sort of um, independents like middle group, um, contemporary Freudians, contemporary Kleinians. So that's that's why I really love it um, actually is because it does teach all of the different orientations and it's always great to get you know supervisors from different orientations which I which I managed to do and um, whereas you know I think uh, maybe even 25 years ago you people would have said it was just Freudian and it wasn't interested in anything else and um, but it's it's changed when the inst when the institute split because it was just one for a long time about thirty years ago when it split into two institutes um, because it was so uh, sort of um, conservative traditional uh, it, then it had to do you know sort of like um, self check and and that was the renaissance I think of the of the original institute yeah. When anything is under trauma or under pressure, that's when, as we know individually, that's when we actually maybe can do, um, maybe can change some of the things that are causing, holding us back. And that's what happened to the Institute. And that's what's happening now. And that's what's happening hopefully. now. In the whole world, hopefully. <laughs> yes. The Great Awakening, maybe. The Great Pause and the Great Awakening. How is it there for you? I mean, I've been inside for what, nine, nine or 10 weeks now? I don't know. So um, it's not mandated here, but I, I've just been inside. We were supposed to fly to the States like on March 13th, like right when it all started happening. And we decided like that Monday, like March 9th to, to cancel our trip. Um, and then by the 13th, they had closed the borders anyway. So we couldn't have gone anyway. So just because I guess I'm from the States and so many people I know are there, um, I've been like really identified with what's happening there, I guess, that I've just completely locked myself inside and I only go out to get groceries basically and do laundry. Um, but I, but it's not mandated here. And I, when I do go out, I do see people walking around like in the sun jogging and without masks and it doesn't seem any different. So that's kind of strange to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's so weird. It's, um, and and sort of like mask wearing has become so politicized in the states. You know, it's become part of the culture wars, which is so so interesting. Um, so the whole thing has become. It's hard to know what it is that's going on. Is it a political economic thing that's going on, or is it a, an epidemiological thing that's going on? Is it a psychological thing that's going on? I tend to, you know, I'm sure as you do, I tend to see the the anxiety attached and the, the projection and the, the, what does the virus mean in people's psyches? How are people experiencing it um, psychologically? And it seems kind of this, um, you know, fragmentation. Uh, it's almost like radiation poisoning in the air. Everyone seems kind of dangerous. Um, so we're, I think we're all living in the paranoid schizoid position when it comes to going outside. Um, so it's really interesting um, following that, but I'm kind of ready for it to be over, I think. <laughs> that would be nice. I've kind of written off this entire year because like all the conferences that I wanted to, wanted to go to or plan to go to, like even in October, everything's been canceled. So I have a really big terrace 
which is fortunate. <laughs> so now that it's finally warm enough here in Sweden that I can actually sit on the terrace, I just plan on like working and reading on the terrace until it gets too cold to do it again, which will be like mm-hmm. October. And then uh-huh. maybe I'll go outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you have a, a practice, like a full practice? Um, here, I, here I'm just online. I thought about getting an office last summer. And then when I, I found the perfect office, and then like right when I was about to sign the lease, I was like, maybe I don't want an office right now. Like maybe I'll just keep this like smaller practice here um online and because I started like writing a lot more and doing this podcast and doing other things to kind of fill my time um because in New York I had like 10 hours a day of patience you know it's like seeing like 10 people a day four or five days a week um so and now I'm extra glad that I decided last summer not to do that because it was like August because then I'd be like trying to have a burgeoning practice here in the middle of all this and that would probably be a disaster so that was the right decision yeah (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, I have you know sort of a very full practice but it's all online and phone right now and uh, like anyone I see on the couch I I see by phone and anyone I see face to face I do teleconferencing Um, but you know that's close to 40 hours a week which is a lot and uh, my goal eventually would be to be down to maybe 25, 30 hours a week and do kind of some writing and filmmaking on the side. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's but nice I, I, to have it be more balanced yeah. for me anyway. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in my case, it came out of, you know, it wasn't something I planned to do. I didn't plan to go online. It just happened by my life's trajectory, moving countries, you know, but now a lot of people are having to go online. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's online. We were just told in Ontario that as of tomorrow, we may, if we wish, begin seeing uh, people for in-person counseling again, but I don't think anyone's really ready to do that. You know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I I have to recover my psychoanalytic couch for example so that I can be you know I'm able to spray it down and disinfect it after you know like so that 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 has to happen my office is really small I had people I can't have them six feet away you know so um just kind of thinking ahead you know maybe it'll maybe a lot of us will stay online for you know a couple of years you know Mm. Yeah, because we don't really know when this is going to be done. And like the Spanish flu was around for like three years. So it could be a while. It could be a while. Yeah. So it's sort of like rethinking a lot of things. I find it really interesting because, of course, as you know, there's such a resistance to the idea of um, remote analysis in, in, in the past, like you know, remote analysis, remote supervision, remote uh, training analyses, and so on. And now suddenly everyone has to do it. And so we're starting to see the benefits um, that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When I moved, when I left New York, I tried to refer everybody to someone. I was like, we're in New York. There's plenty of analysts here. Just see someone else. But some people were just like, no, you know, <laughs> Like, yeah. I've been seeing you for this many years. I don't want to start over with someone. And I, and I was like, just yeah. try. And they were like, no. <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. And then some people tried to see someone I referred them to um, and then came back. It was like, please, I don't, I'd rather just do it remotely. Um, and also like my office was near a bunch of colleges in Manhattan. And so most of my patients, my analysis were like, you know, under 30, like 25, 27 years old. So it's just like normal. It's not like there's like no difference between like real life yeah. and online life for digital natives, you know, it's just, it's just life. Yeah. Um, and yeah. also I, I had also had a couple of people that had like moved to like the West coast of the U.S. Um, and I had referred them to people there and then they had come back and been like, I'd rather talk to you. I'm not really jiving with these analysts, you know? So you just let them come back <laughs> and it's been fine. I, I realized that I'm the one that had more of a problem or worry about it than any of them, you know? Yeah, yeah. definitely with younger patients. And um, it, it's been interesting moving, moving the four or five times a week patients on the, onto the phone. Um, it took me maybe a month 
before it stopped feeling like a long phone call <laughs> and started feeling like analysis, you know, a long five long phone calls a week. Now it's, now I'm sort of feeling more analytic, but it took a while. Um, but my, yeah, they, they're happy. Like my, I, I told them all that we could potentially begin to see each other in person if anyone really felt the need like for people who've been, you know, sort of very neglected, for example, in infancy, they do feel the deprivation quite, quite fulsomely, I think. Um, and so do you guys want to return? If so, let me know and we'll see how we can do it. No, everybody's okay. They're fine. Yeah. I, I had two people um, who didn't want to continue remotely when, when, the, when, when I first switched. And two people who returned to therapy, who'd been gone for a year or a few months or whatever, and said, "Like, uh, I think I need to talk again." You know, so um, my practice has not really changed. It's interesting, mm -hmm. like the the size of it and the, the number of hours and so. Yeah, no, I've actually gained a few people too as well because people are stressed basically, and they they <laughs> want to start talking to someone again. Yeah, and I don't know if you if you um, saw on on my social media that I started a volunteer initiative here in Ontario. Like this was at the end of March, um, and I saw something in New York that was um, basically a, a mental health network of volunteer therapists uh, providing pro pro bono teletherapy to frontline COVID workers. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I saw it in New York and I thought, oh, we should do that here. And I started, like I put the word out on social media and we had the whole thing up in two hours. We, and then within three days, we had 450 volunteers and we now have 900 volunteer therapists who are providing pro bono teletherapy to COVID frontline COVID workers. We've been doing that for a couple months now. I can't tell. It's the time is goo for most of us. It's all gone to goo. But um but that's been really interesting. And uh and those people are super stressed and they can't talk to their family members because their family members are like they don't they can't talk to people like co-workers a little. Family members know, friends know. And so we've been finding just um, because they don't want to scare their um, family members, um, they've, they've been making use of this pro bono teletherapy, which is I'm hoping on the other side of this, we'll be able to show the government that we need to fu properly fund um, teletherapy, that that, uh, that that will be uh, save money in the end, you know, for the government, if I can convince them of that you know not just because it's the right thing to do but because it'll save them money <laughs> you know? that's what they'll listen to <laughs> hopefully yeah. no it, yeah. I mean it really helps I mean the, my the my whole like internship program when I was in train when psychology training um it was all funded through through the government in Florida because of the fact that you know it had been shown that people who are getting I worked in a inpatient unit but not in a psychiatric inpatient just medical inpatient and basically did what's called cons consultation liaison which is when you go around and talk to patients who are there for medical reasons but who the doctor the the providing physician decides are a little bit more anxious or depressed than usual to be in the hospital and they call in the psychology team because um, it shows if people have someone to talk to while they're in the hospital then they tend to get better faster <laughs> No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> because mental health is health, but it's always been sort of separated, you know, it's sort of binary. It's so interesting. Yeah. Which, of course, watching the Freud series, we can see quite clearly, you know, that's where he's starting. No, 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 no. This is the same. These are the same. Mental health is health. And, you know, um, things in the mind affect things in the body. And, um, exactly. So and the know. mind's not just the brain. No. No, that, that, that mind and body are not separate things, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I so, think that was one great thing about the show that they sh showed was him like standing up to kind of the medical establishment because that's really hard to do. And we're still doing that in a lot of ways. And um, yeah. Thank you. For yes, I mean, there's such an anti-psychoanalytic bent now here in Toronto among the psychiatrists, like the sort of psychiatric community, which used to be very psychoanalytic. 
analytic in Toronto in the in the heyday, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, I believe. But it started to kind of like dip now. And um, as CBT and, you know, the sort of instrumentalization um, comes about. And so we're 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 now um, having to really give voice to um, to, to psychoanalysis, but ne- like a, a lot of neuropsychoanalysis, even though I, I find neuropsychoanalysis to be more rhetorical than, than anything else. Like I don't really find it, I don't know how it helps people, you know, reduce their, like helps us help people reduce suffering. But I do think it shows something um, scientifically that Freud intuited or, or sort of knew uh, or showed uh, through um, through other kinds of evidence. Uh, so yeah, we're we, we're getting we're starting to get um, adequate sort of support here to um, to to counter some of that anti psychoanalysis that's happening. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that neuropsychoanalysis is helpful in that it will help medical doctors see that maybe they can use psychoanalysis again or still or refer to it or that there's some sort of use in like connecting those two things again. I feel like people who aren't medical doctors um, or are medical doctors that already believe in psychoanalysis don't really need it. But like maybe it's another way in to like get some more people to be like, hey, maybe Freud had something to say. (laughs) And and I feel the same way. I'm happy to be you know, told differently. And it's uh, one of the sad things for me about the, um, you know, sort of shutdown of everything was that I had applied to the um, visiting candidate program through IPSO, which is the International Psychoanalytic Student Organization through the IPA. And I was approved to get, be give, I was being funded to go to South Africa for two weeks, oh. the end of this month. Um, and and be a visiting candidate at the South African Institute, which is in both Johannesburg and Cape Town. And I was going to be receiving some um, supervision, personal supervision by Mark Solms, who is the, you know, sort of world leader in neuropsychoanalysis and is, um, you know, a part of the Institute there. So I was so excited to go and to uh, spend a week in Cape Town and a week in Johannesburg out in the townships where they're using psychoanalytically informed social work out in the townships. And uh, so maybe, maybe, I don't know, 2021, 2022, but not this year. It's too bad. No, but that's amazing that there's psychoanalytically informed social work, like going out into people's homes. Yeah, out out into the townships. Um, Yeah, what a different, so very different cities, right? Johannesburg and Cape Town, very different um, uh, psychoanalytic experiences, but uh, the Institute is sort of in both both places. Um, but I think I'm, it also I'm, shows it's so great to see how like there there only needs to be really one person in your area that's like really, really pushing it. And that can really have an effect because they can like help like supervise people or mentor people or train people or like just even point people in the other in other directions or like yeah. be like, hey, maybe you should call someone. You know, <laughs> it only takes one suggested phone call to get your change <laughs> of life direction sometimes. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we just need a yes. You know, it's there's so much no in the world. Sometimes we just need a yes um, or a moment of recognition that can, can change a life. Uh, back in, um, I think, October, I went to, to Korea and I presented a paper um, in Korea and showed m- my Beatrice Beebe documentary to the Korean Psychoanalytic uh, Society. Um, and so they had their annual conference. So I presented the paper to like uh, 200 um, Korean psychiatrists. Uh, they have a tiny little psychoanalytic uh, society, but, um, but a lot of people interested in it. And the reason that I got connected to that was one of my classmates, uh, Jay, um, is uh, from Seoul. And so uh, at the Toronto Institute. So he was here um, uh, training at the TI- TIP and uh, and then asked me, invited me to come to Korea and present this paper. Um, so th- th- I think there are now maybe 13 or 14 psychoanalysts in, in Korea. A lot of them trained in California, um, and some of them remotely. 
And, but because of people like Jay, it's starting to expand and, and explode. Uh, in, and so it's, I'm so interested in seeing how sort of psychoanalysis takes root somewhere and then expands. And yes, you're right. It's often one person, mm-hmm. one person who is just a great um, avatar for, uh, you know, for psychoanalysis who had a wonderful experience. So, yeah, that's that. I'd like to do more of that in the future. Just kind of go and see how psychoanalysis is playing out in different places. Absolutely. And to go farther east, like go to the far east and the near east and the Middle East and uh, North Africa, South Africa, uh, and connect with more analysts. There's this conference that's starting actually this Wednesday uh, on the 20th on the psychology of global crises. And it's really great because it's, it's from the American University in Paris, but it's like the speakers are from all over the world. Uh, like actually all over the world. <laughs> and, um, you know, of course it's online, so you can sign in from all over the world. And like, like my talk is like at, you know, 9, 9 p.m. at night, 9.30 at night here or something. But that, you know, they range so that people like in California or farther east could see, could still um, participate. Oh, wow. um, and so I'm really excited to see how that is and to see like all the different perspectives from actually all over the world. It's really an opportunity that we have now that things are going online um, in that way that that wouldn't have before. Yes. What are you speaking about? Um, I'm on a panel where we're talking about basically using technology for better communication and uh, also to give platforms to more voices, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, again, I I know I keep talking about how great my institute is, but it is. Um, One of my classmates, uh, originally, we had someone who was just auditing the class. He's a psychiatrist who was visiting, visiting professor from, I believe, um, Ethiopia. And so his, his work, you know, psychoanalytic work in Ethiopia is, has a totally different expression and um, and use depending on the population he's working with, but he was working with a lot of like traditional doctors <clears throat> in in uh, you know out in the sort of countryside in Ethiopia and finding a lot of psychoanalytic ideas very um, conversant with the kind of work that they do. Uh, so so we had him. We had some. We have a, uh, somebody from Peru, somebody from Mexico, somebody from Korea. Um, you know, and that was that t- to me just makes the brain explode with ideas and, and, uh, and, and does the, the job of, um, you know, helping psychoanalysis to be more than just a kind of very Eurocentric kind of idea. We've, we've often said, oh, is it just Vienna in the 19th century that psychoanalysis is good for, you know, is it, since it comes out of there? No, we all have an unconscious. It just takes, it, you know, it gives it's given different expression depending on where we are the ideas Absolutely. are Mm-hmm. And I found I've done these conferences where I've invited like artists and psychoanalysts and like shamanic practitioners, like people that are either like contemporary shamans or voodoo priests or santeria priests or these kinds of uh, kimbanda tatas, um, where they all speak together. And you know, it fits. <laughs> they all have wonderful conversations. And I find that like, like when I study like the Pantheon and Santeria or Vodou, it's uh, the psychology behind uh, all of the different manifestations of gods um, is so much more intricate and uh, resonant than like anything in Western psychology. You know, when they talk like, like my, my graduate training was in I have a side D, so it's a doctor of psychology. It's very like clinic-based psychology, which is really like DSM and working in hospitals and knowing medications. <laughs> you know, it's not very theoretical. And everything we were trained to do is like, is just like so behavior oriented and really reductionistic as to people's psychology, like really kind of on the main art scale of like reducing people to their biology and behavior. Um, and like, you know, 
coping skills can be useful, but then, you know, then what do you do? It's a lot more than like just using coping skills. Um, But I find that like every time I I listen to one of the, these speakers present uh, these couple of conferences I've done, it's just like the the understanding of the mind is so much deeper and more nuanced uh, than anything in Western psychology. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was reading an article this morning on uh, Eon, um, and it was about sort of the science of consciousness, which I thought I would be interested in. And I, I was reading it, and I was thinking, oh my God, this is so the wrong question. Like, you guys are going down the wrong path. Like, you're trying to, you know, science, uh, sort of scientize something that, you know, in psychoanalysis, we like, we're not interested in what consciousness is. You know, like they're trying to kind of get down to the quantum of consciousness. It's not interesting to me. You know, it's it's the wrong question. Yeah. And I like it to let it be messy. Like like things can contradict each other. That's how the unconscious is. You know, everything's yeah. not going to fit into this little like diagram that you invent <laughs> because of that. Just that reason you've invented it. <laughs> yeah. And I think the diagram is the symptom. Uh, the right, exactly. It's the, it's, it's the coping mechanism. I can't stand how messy and en- enigmatic it all is, you know. And so I've got to make this Venn diagram that sounds really mystical, but is really just my anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look how smart I am. I can box everything into these little fragments of information and memorize it and tell yeah. other people that that's reality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so interesting to see again, to see that right now with all these numbers that we see every day of Corona cases and, you know, sort of like deaths and they're just numbers, but they're supposed to tell us something, you know, they're, and they, you know, no matter how much you try to contextualize the numbers, they're just numbers. And, um, they're just trying to, I I don't know what they're trying to do, but, uh, make us feel like we have more of a handle on it than we actually do. I suppose, you know, I just see the numbers. As, and as using the, the numbers to be like, okay, well, this is how many deaths, like what the death to economic ratio, like what, what does it mean? And when is it okay? Like, I don't know. It's kind of madness. Yeah. It's <laughs> madness that looks like reason, right. you know, but we see as, as analysts, we can see that it's, that it's the form of madness, that it's a, that it's a symptom of, of, um, of the, of the, of the, the fear. Yeah. Yes, of a much, much larger, deeper issue. <laughs> I also see this whole thing. Kind, I know they te- they taught us in our institute that we're not supposed to like look at society in this psychoanalytic way, but I can't help it. Sometimes I do, and um, I really see this as like it's it's just like with an individual. It's like you try to ignore a symptom, you try to ignore a symptom, and it gets louder and louder and louder until eventually it like hits you in the face and you fall down and you just can't ignore it anymore and you have to deal with it, you know? And that's usually when someone comes into treatment. So like, yes, our global society, it's time to go into treatment. <laughs> Yes, it's time to go on the couch, all of us. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. I'm hoping that that's what happens. That's my, that's my great fantasy is that, you know, now is the time when we've reached a level of intolerance for the way things are. Um, we can't stand it and we're in so much pain that we have to um, fix the underlying issue, you know, go to the underlying issue and listen. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Karen Doherty, psychoanalytic psychotherapist and documentary filmmaker located in Toronto. For more, please visit her website, karendoherty.ca. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P 
p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast website renderingunconscious.org And now, Dark Moon from the album Cut to Fit the Mouth available digitally at Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp and as deluxe standard and limited edition CDs from Trapart Editions. Recorded on the new moon, June 3rd, 2016. My lunar module could never rust. Take me to the moon. The dark side of the moon. Yeah, temporarily in is Lilith. And I bring to you, despised, and I seek your moment of freedom. Were spare developed an idiocut. Creative space, habit right there. As soon as the knowledge, by leaving the child. Fly to UK to sign books. Return home from UK. Brian Geisen and William S. His works. However, the definition, connective tissue, as the skin limbs, and divination proved was not that very be with you no or not no of laboring feel of laboring feet no or not no be with you very that was not proved and divination as the skin limbs Connective tissue, definition, his works, however, the Brian Geisen and William S. Return home from UK, fly to UK to sign books, knowledge by leaving the child, habit right there, as soon as this spare created an idiosyncratic space were moment of freedom despised and I seek your is Lilith and I bring to you temporarily in the dark side of the moon yeah take me to the moon my lunar module could never rest 